Hello there, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry for another stimulating session of this podcast. Today is the 3rd of July, 2019, and yes, indeed, I'm going to continue discussing hepatocellular carcinoma because, well, for the best reason, we haven't finished the topic. So we're going to get started. We're going to get right back into it. Recall we have been discussing how proteases and protease inhibitors are associated with this disease. And we went through a lot of other um, possible clinical manifestations and also causal factors for late-stage hepatocellular carcinoma. We talked about prodromal stages and how they can be detected. We talked about um, lifestyle patterns, such as the use of alcohol, illicit drugs, uh, obesity associated with type 2 diabetes. Now that was linked into hepatocellular carcinoma. We talked about the uh, hepatitis viruses, uh, particularly hep B and hep C, and how those two viruses are directly linked to inducing fibrosis cirrhosis onward to HCC. Uh, we're going to get back to that uh, towards the end of today's talk. So right now I want to get right back into discussing um, the protease inhibitors. So recall how these function. They inhibit the proteases. And proteases have been linked to control over metastatic cancers, not just hepatocellular carcinoma primary, but also pancreatic cancer. And we even discussed uh, components of the central nervous system, brain cancer. So right now, let's talk about something called PEDF. Okay, now PEDF is pigment epithelial-derived factor. And it's one of these non-inhibitory serpents, serpents being serine protease inhibitor. So when I say it's non-inhibitory, it means it doesn't function as a serpent, but it has the correct um, amino acid sequence and, and correct nucle nucleotide sequence that it comes out as a gene for protease inhibition, serine protease inhibition. However, it doesn't work that way. At least it doesn't appear to. In fact, um, this non-inhibitory serpent um, seems to be associated with an anti-angiogenic activity. And it's recently implicated in lots of things, including the metabolism and adipogenesis, both which are both, of course, are known to induce uh, cancer progression and therefore give a poor outcome. So in the pancreas, increased pancreatic fat in human pancreatic tumor correlates with a greater tumor dissemination. While a deficiency in that PEDF, that serpent in mice, promoted pancreatic hyperplasia and indeed visceral obesity. Oncogenic rash gene, the most common mutation in pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, or PDAC, was of course similarly shown to promote adipogenesis and uh, the prodromal premalignant lesions found in pancreatic uh, adenocarcinomas. Okay, so. They used methods in this paper. I'm talking about a paper published in GUT, the journal GUT in 2012, uh, to determine whether concurrent loss of the PEDF, the, the serpent, would be sufficient to promote adipogenesis and tumorigenesis in the pancreas. So the authors of this paper ablated, removed PEDF uh, uh, expression in the background of a mouse, which is called a crash G12D mouse model, which is basically a non-invasive cystic papillary neoplasic mouse model. So 
pancreatic cancer harbors an activated point mutation in the CRAS G120 gene. And so it's called the CRAS proto-oncogenic model, and it's been demonstrated to promote the development of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, ductal adenocarcinoma. So when they used that model, they generated a PEDF deficient mouse with the background of that CRAS pancreatic cancer model. And they associated with a matrix metalloproteinase, this happened to be the MMP2 isoform, and also the MMP9, which will come up later. So they looked at the expression of those two metalloproteinases. Remember what they do? They help destroy the matrix. And when they destroy the matrix, they can enhance metastasis. So they looked at those two enzymes and they looked at increased peripancreatic fat deposition. And of course, also adipocyte hypertrophy and intrapancreatic adipocyte infiltration. The process, of course, being similar to liver steatosis. This is pancreatic steatosis. So in support of increased adipogenesis, the stroma of the pancreas of that crash G12D background mouse with the PEDF deficiency demonstrated indeed a higher tissue level of, of lipid droplets. Also lipid droplet associated proteins and something called the tail interactive protein or TIP47 which is associated with the perilipin-3 protein, which, of course, helps get triacylglycerol removed from the lipid droplet. Also, it was associated with adipose differentiation-related protein, or the ADRP, uh, and perilipoprotein-2. So the adipose triglycerol lipase and a key factor in lipolysis were all decreased. So in patients with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, both tissue and serum levels of PEDF were decreased. Stromal TIP47 expression was higher, and tissue VEGF to PEDF ratio was increased. That's all promoting then pancreatic cancer. So more about PEDF. Recombinant PEDF doesn't have any effect on trypsin, chymotrypsin, elastis, cathepsin C, endoproteinase, Lysine, uh, endoproteinase, glucine, or indeed even subtilisin activity. And so that suggests that that particular serine protease, uh, whatever it's doing, is not the biochemical pathway is not associated with its protease inhibition. So we already know that, but that was published uh, several years ago in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, 1993. So that was when it was first determined. Now let's jump all the way ahead to a paper published in Cell Death and Disease, published in August of 2017, a couple of years ago, uh, that would have been in volume eight and pages 26, uh, 2969 and ongoing. Here, they're going to talk again about PEDF. Now, let's, where does this key in? This keys in with hepatocellular carcinoma. So let's go through this paper quickly. Again, 2017 paper, Cell Death and Disease. PEDF has complex functions, of course, in tumor metastasis, as we've been saying, but not much is known about um, how it works in hepatocellular carcinoma. And as it turns out, high expression of PEDF is associated with a shorter overall survival in HCC patients, so different than this pancreatic story. In fact, enforced expression of PEDF 
enhanced epithelial carcinoma aggressive behavior, both in vitro and in vivo, whereas silencing the expression of that serpent reduced migration and invasion, of course, the hallmarks of metastasis. So to add fuel to the tumor, PEDF expression led to changes in cell morphology and an uptick in the epithelial mesenchymal transition, that EMT transition, which is often very dangerous because it can often lead to um, ERK-1-2 signaling, and then that leads to cell proliferation and tumorigenesis. So downstream of all those events is, of course, also an upregulation of various cell surface proteins. In this instance, they saw an increase in N-cadherin and a downregulation of E-cadherin in the hepatocellular carcinoma cells. So there's a differentiation of the cadherin expression. Also, very significantly, PDF interacted with laminin receptor, LR, and indeed, LR knockdown attenuated the PEDF-induced migration, invasion, and that transition, that EMT transition, and all the markers associated with it. Can't hear an alteration and whatnot, the ERK signaling I just mentioned. Now, what is laminin? Laminin, of course, is a fibrous protein, and it's, in, it's found in the basal lamina, uh, lamina of epithelial cells. And the laminin receptor, what it does is it... It, once it binds to the ligand, it allows cell adhesion to the basement membrane, and it's associated with signaling transduction, which is part of that whole binding event. That signaling transduction then can, of course, lead to hyperplasia. Okay, so clinically obtained epithelial carcinoma specimens had a PEDF expression that correlated with subcellular localization, subcellular localization of the uh, laminin receptor with an increased PEDF tracking with increased LR linking to poor prognosis, poor, uh, that is greater disease promotion, poor prognosis for survival from HCC. So the work published in the cell death paper uncovered a new functional role, which looks at the PEDF LR axis, which drives metastasis through an ERK-1-2 mediated, that's ERK-2, to kinase, uh, one, two, mediated epithelial to mesenchymal transition in the pathocellular carcinoma, and that expose, that ex may expose a really powerful prognostic marker for HCC, or maybe even a drug target. Now, let's go to a paper published in the Saudi Journal of Gastroenterology, not something I normally read, but let's take a look at what this paper says, published in September of 2016, and following along with our um, interrogation of the PDF, serum PEDF and the metallo, uh, matrix metalloprotease 9 were higher in an HCC cohort than in the control group at a really low p-value, 0.001. Okay, so this is interesting. This is clinical data. In patients with alcoholic or mixed alcoholic and viral hepatitis-related cirrhosis, serum PEDF was higher than in all the other patients. That's even in the mixed population of causal agents related to the HCC. And in fact, when patients with viral hepatitis-related cirrhosis, significantly higher PEDF levels were recorded than in those that had pathocellular uh, carcinoma, um, but without that viral load. So it looks like the virus also is associated with PEDF. 
So that's something I want you to keep in mind. This, this PDF where it looked like it could be a positive, when you diminished it, it had a positive effect uh, on uh, pancreatic cancer. When you see it, it's increased in activity in the pathocellular carcinoma that enhances metastasis. So see two different things. One is how the pancreatic cancer was developing as a, as a ductal adenocarcinoma, and the other had to do with whether or not the liver then becomes a metastatic source for cancer. You see, two totally different things with a reversal on the PEDF activity, which is, again, a serpent without serpent functionality, right? A paper from the JBC in 1993 that showed that. Okay, so let's try to wrap up this protease inhibitor stuff real quickly here. Um, here's a paper published in Life Science 2018 in May, exactly a year, well, not exactly because now it's July, a year or two months ago. Um, okay, and what's titled as paper is Serpent B3 induces dipeptidyl peptidase for CD26 expression in its metabolic effects in hepatocellular carcinoma. So let's get into this. In HCC, the regulatory proteinase, which is this DPP. Four, okay, dipeptidopeptidase, that's a protease. It possesses proapoptotic properties and has been found abnormally regulated. Protease inhibitor serpent B3 exerts anti-apoptotic activity, so it's dysregulating the protease, okay, because that's a proapoptotic enzyme when it's in its functional state. So, all of that's been described to be upregulated, especially in hepatocellular carcinoma with a poor prognosis. High serpent B3 uh, and a dysregulated DPP4. Okay, got it? So DPP4, also known as CD26, and serpent B3 expression was measured in liver of 67 patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. So they got two different cell types, HEP G2 and HUH7 cells or HUS cells. They stably transfected them to overexpress the serpent B3 uh, gene. And they got had retrospective uh, control cells just to look at this biological and metabolic modification on the dipeptidyl protease, uh, dipeptidyl peptidase 4, or protease 4. Okay, so that's what they did. So what they found is that the DPP4 and serpent B3 were both localized to the same tumor area. Both molecules were correlated with the grade of tumor differentiation with the highest value detected in tumors. Cell lines overexpressing serpent B3 displayed upregulation of the DPP4. Likely as, now, isn't that interesting? Because you tell, because it's, because you know, the serpent is going to inhibit its activity. So serpent caused an upregulation of the transcription of DPP4. And that's believed to be a feedback mechanism due to the DPP4 protease activity inhibition exerted by serpent B3, okay? So the protease inhibitor is doing its part here. It's not like the PEDF. It actually is a protease inhibitor, serpent B3. It inhibits that DPP4 activity, and in so doing, it induces the transcription of that DPP4 expression. That's what's going on here. Okay, so that's often what happens. If you decrease the activity, the signaling of the activity of a protein, that can feed back into a transcriptional uptick in its expression. That's exactly what they found here. All right. So 
what what this looks like besides what other kind of phenotype you get is you get a lower glycogen storage level, but a higher lipid accumulation level. And those are actually typical effects of that dipeptidylprotease 4 activity because of how it regulates metabolic activity. So it looks like there's a close connection between serpent B3 and DPP4. And the, probably other studies have to be uh, 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 taken on to understand that mechanism and determine how those proteins are actually exerting the metabolic effect you see, the glycogen stores and the lipid accumulation in the pedocellular carcinoma patients. So that's just yet another story, right, about how the serine protease inhibitors and serine proteases are playing a role in this disease. All right. So now let's back out of that. Let's finally get out of the proteases and protease inhibitors, okay? I know we spent like three episodes talking about them, but it was necessary because you need to know that background to fully appreciate the complete um, uh, architectonic of the disease, hepatocellular carcinoma. So let's go all the way back up. Let's go well way up at the top of the mountain and look down on the disease uh, from a, a macroscopic perspective. Remember, HCC is the leading cause of death in cancer patients. And what you're always going to find in the literature, you clinicians, and I'm sure you know this, it, they're going to tell you it's caused by chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C virus. They're also going to tell you in the literature that lifestyle factors which contribute to obesity uh, other lifestyle factors such as alcohol abuse and illicit drug use, um, which, which of course links back to the, the progression of HCV, all link up to HCC manifestation. Okay. So what is HCV? What is that virus? I'm not going to talk about the virology of it, although we could spend an entire episode on it. In fact, if I do that, I'm going to want to have slides to show you I'm going to switch over to Virev Med video for that. Right now, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you something about the clinical transmission. HCV is transmitted by needles. And indeed, when you see it manifest in people over 45, 55, 65, people of that age group, many third world childhood immunizations and blood transfusions, which were conducted in the 70s, appear to have led to HCV-induced cirrhosis in current day, and ultimately the cirrhosis leading to hepatocellular carcinoma and death. So it's like a latency period of that chronic um, HCV, that virus, okay, hepatitis C virus, that could have been introduced during the early phases of immunizations, particularly when, when needles were not cleaned, particularly in third world countries. So here's a case in point. Today and in the more recent past, massive drug immunizations programs have been conducted in Africa. And they often are going after other diseases entirely, but they may have surreptitiously spread HCV. Case in point, it's just a, a schistosomal maniasis. So schistosomal maniasis, that's a parasitic infection. We have uh, uh, m multiple drugs now that can target that. But back in the day, there was a vaccine that used tartar emetic intravenous uh, delivery. So it was an intravenous delivery called tartar emetic. 
needles were used and reused back in that period. And the blood supplies that were also used during that period were screened. And that led to a shift from schistosoma myoniasis being a liver-associated disease, because that's where schistosomes target is the liver. That's being replaced because that's being knocked out now by drugs that specifically inhibit that parasite that aren't related to uh, intravenous delivery of drugs. That's being replaced by HCV as being the cause of cirrhosis of the liver and cirrhosis leading to hepatocellular carcinoma. And that all comes from a hepatology paper published in 20, uh, 2006, May of 2006, that you can take a look at. So, of course, there's a new pharmacotherapy for patients with advanced cirrhosis, and it's actually used to prevent the hepatitis C virus. And what those are are direct-acting antivirals, or DAAs. So one of them is lepidisivir, which is a potent inhibitor of the HCV NS5A viral phosphoproteins. That plays a that protein plays an important role, of course, in viral replication, assembly, and secretion. So when you use that drug, which is lepidifacir, that's a potent inhibitor of that protein, which is involved in viral replication. That's a current drug being used. Second one is sofospuvir, sofospuvir, and that's actually a nucleotide analog inhibitor of the Hep C virus polymerase. Now, that's, of course, a key enzyme also in HCV RNA replication. HCV is an RNA uh, virus. So the triphosphate form of that drug, which is, again, sofosbuvir, okay? So there's a triphosphate form of that drug as a name, GS461203. That drug mimics the natural cellular uridine nucleotides. It gets incorporated into the HCV RNA polymerase and into the elongating RNA primer strand, and that basically results in viral chain termination. So those are the current drugs being administered in pill form to knock out the uh, hepatitis C virus. So we're no longer doing intravenous, and this seems to be very, very uh, potent and functional, like 96% elimination of the virus. If you can get rid of the virus during the early stages, prodromal stages, before cirrhosis really sets in, that is viral-induced cirrhosis, you can block that progression to HCC. That's had a tremendously positive effect. The problem is, is that drug use, intravenous drug use, is back on the rise, has been on the rise for the decades, but now it's in the West, a tremendous level. So people who reuse needles are people that are most likely to be transfer, uh, transferring hepatitis C virus. And those are the people because they're getting massive reintroduction of the virus, right? Not a one-time deal like a tartar emetic or something like an immunization back in, back in the, the jungles of Africa in the 70s, where you see this flare of hepatocellular carcinoma happening in the 2010s and, and onward. We're having regular repeat utilization, reuse of needles. Those needles are allowing for the spread of the hepatitis C virus, and that's inducing now cirrhosis in these po this population, leading to hepatocellular carcinoma. It's a whole new gambit coming on. So 
um, th there are multiple multiple ways to deal with this uh, um, uh, epidemic. So the, there's been this approval of those DAA medications. Remember, those are direct antiviral acting, right? And none of them are now using interferon gamma. That used to be the way to inhibit viruses. All kinds of bad side effects there because it's inhibiting global replication. Interferons are not uh, very precise, lo locus-specific targeting, right? So anyways, there's a lot of well-tolerated oral regimens for uh, knocking out um, the, the hepatitis C virus and even the hepatitis B virus, right? But there are different genotypes of the hepatitis C virus. Not all of them could be targeted with these new drugs. Uh, the major ones, though, tend to be, right? And it also, but again, taking the drugs also depends on the stage of the liver disease, that is the cirrhosis, and any other comorbidities like alcohol use and the illicit drug use. So the newer DAA drugs target various points of the HCV replication cycle, as I just mentioned to you, the RNA polymerase uh, and, and associated binding proteins. So the medications are going to affect key structures in the replication process, either directly or by binding the components of the replicase complex, as I just told you, which is going to initiate RNA chain termination. So remember that that previr suffix, those are going to be medications that inhibit the polymerase, and the buvir are ones that are, are going to be uh, at the chain termination uh, spectrum of mode of action, pharmacodynamics of the drugs. So treating HCV in co-infected patients has led to instances of HBV virus reactivation. So you treat for HCV, and then you get HBV reactivated in those populations. So now that's a boxed warning on existing DAA meds. So patients with uh, uh, hepatitis C virus-associated renal diseases or cryoglobinemia or glomerular disease or type 2 diabetes, very common, or severe fatigue even, uh, may see improvement in those conditions with HCV resolution. But data is lacking when you don't, you with the non-interferon-based treatment regimens to support it. So the, comparing it to, to the normal interferon treatment. So they need to be looking at that. That's what's going on right now in 2019. So in addition to surgical removal, chemotherapy using uh, drugs like sorafenib, which is a multi-kinase inhibitor, um, which is, of course, recognized as an effective treatment for HCC, treatment with a sorafenib in both in vivo and in vitro studies actually suppress cell proliferation, metastasis, and angiogenesis via inactivation of the VEGF receptors. Okay? However, sorafenib resistance, this is why we're going back and looking at proteases, and we're looking at inhibition of the virus, we're going all the way back and re-understanding the modeling understanding of the drug, the architectonic uh, of the disease with those drugs. Serafinib resistance in advanced HCC is considered a serious problem that has to be overcome with HCC therapies. Um, so the identification of new therapeutic targets and development of specific inhibitors is required. Recently, several papers are talking about epigenetic modifiers using microRNAs, histone modification, DNA methylation patterns, sirtuins, that kind of whole pathway. And those may those are apparently are involved in HCC proliferation uh, and metastasis. So there's a lot of epigenetic regulation, something I've been really driving home in authentic biochemistry and in Malmivera med lectures. 
because because uh, epi, epigenesis controls oncogenic expression and also the dysregula dysregulation of tumor suppressor genes. All of that could be epigenetic phenomena. So, of course, also we're using standard checkpoint immunotherapy, such as the PD, PD-1 inhibitors for HCC. So when I get back to this, I'm going to talk to you more about the epigenetics and also about the virus. So for now, though, we're going to close and we're going to say bye for now.